Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Anthony Hackett and this is the Is That a Thing podcast. The podcast where we use the sharp knife of evidence to dissect dogma and controversies in emergency medicine and critical care. Although we are physicians, this podcast is not medical advice, but aims to discuss and make available the latest and hottest topics in academics in real time to help influence the best practice at the patient's bedside. Hey everybody, it's Anthony Hackett here with Mike McDonald hosting another episode of Is That a Thing? And today we're going to talk all about aspirin. Mike, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for joining me here. We had a debacle with this podcast, so we recorded uh, this entire podcast and then it just recorded Mike, which was beautiful, but of course didn't make any sense. So we're re-recording. We've come in with some new information. We're really happy to be joining each other here and talking about this. Give us a little more time to dig into some interesting stuff about aspirin. I think it's going to be an interesting cast. Yeah, as excited as I was about being solo on the podcast, I think it'll be better. <laughs> Partly because I think that what we just discovered, what we just talked about, some of the new information that we looked up since we recorded the first time is really interesting and I think will be helpful to a lot of people. Totally agree, man. And, and the reason we picked aspirin is because it's just such a common drug. And I think part of the, the ethos of the show is we like to do things that we sort of take for granted and we just give and don't think about it. And I think aspirin is really kind of one of those things that stands out to me. We're just giving it to people, give aspirin, give aspirin, give aspirin. Everybody's on aspirin. Like, should we take it? And then the thing that made us come to this podcast and talk about what's going on is when, when the American Heart Association came out and said, don't use it for primary prevention anymore. And I thought, wait, what? So that's kind of what got, got us digging into it, right? Exactly. And it's, if you think about it, it's the world's most commonly used medication. I wouldn't say drug maybe, but yeah, medication. Yeah. Non-party uh. drug. <laughs> Right. So So it's something, I mean, this is part of our practice every day, right? I mean, we're giving this to several of our patients every single shift. And so there's a lot of interesting background when you dig into it. The way it works is interesting. And there are a lot of interesting questions I think that we can dig into, like do one says, if you have an allergy to one, do you have an allergy to all of them? Things that that always just kind of irritated me in practice because you kind of think you know the answer, but I think digging down into it is going to be really helpful. Totally. And, and I think that's a little foreshadowing for our next podcast in the series. We actually had to split this up because originally it was aspirin and NSAIDs and come to find out the history and story of aspirin is actually really kind of intense. And it took us a lot longer than we expected to get through aspirin. And so we're going to do NSAIDs separately and we'll come back to this as a theme, sort of like our contrast thing. So that's, that's coming up, but we're not quite sure when. So we shall see. To be determined. Cliffhanger. To be determined. Exactly. So <laughs> and right. I think starting this thing about aspirin, just to refresh everybody's memory, I would go back through a little bit of the physiology of aspirin and how NSAIDs work. So remembering that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, basically what they do is they interact with the arachidonic acid cascade. You probably remember from medical school, which basically takes membrane lipids in the cells upon inflammation and breaks them down. And so I'll kind of just nutshell this for you guys. Basically, once you have inflammatory response, you have the, the membrane lipids in the cells and cyclooxygenase basically breaks those down in the arachidonic acid cascade. And on the other side of that cascade is the leukotriene cascade comes from the cell membrane itself as well. And that's what causes allergies. And that's one of the reasons why kids with asthma actually can have worsening asthma when you give them aspirin. Because sometimes if you shut off that 
cox on the other side. So it's like cox and then the leukotrienes. Those are two different pathways. Mm -hmm. If you shut that off, those kids will actually develop worsening as, uh, asthma uh, because all of that energy gets shunted into that leukotriene pathway, which is really interesting, actually. So sort of important to note when you have a history of asthma. Yeah, and I'm glad that's interesting to you because you, you <laughs> dig deep. I think you the stream of consciousness really flows nicely. That's yeah, really, well, really that helpful. doesn't even have to do with aspirin yet. So, so going on the other side, we have the cyclooxygenase enzyme, which is what NSAIDs inhibit. And that enzyme basically facilitates the production of prostaglandins, which have a variety of housekeeping functions, including GI, renal, all the bad things that we get upset about using NSAIDs for. And then the second one is pain and fever homeostasis. And there are a variety of different prostaglandins, but that's basically what we're doing when we're giving aspirin or an NSAID is blocking that and preventing that from causing pain or fever. Uh, and another little side note, which you're going to love the whole thing when moms bring their kids in and they say, man, I gave him Tylenol or I gave him Motrin and his fever went down. And then when his fever went down, he woke up a little bit. And that actually is true because prostaglandin D2, which is one of the ones in the cascade, actually makes kids sleepy when they have a fever. So if you take the fever down and kids wake up, that's a normal response, which is really interesting. Right. And also interesting that the fever causes some somnolence, which is normal because every parent comes in and says, tells you how lethargic their kid is. And he's you wouldn't sleepy. believe my two-year-old, yeah. you know, he's a, usually a really <laughs> active kid. Well, okay. So yeah. is every other two-year-old on the planet. Right. I yeah. believe. Yeah. You're not yes. alone, lady. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Exactly. Do, yeah. Exactly. And I, when my kids have a fever, I intentionally don't treat because I enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Oh, look, you're actually you laying down quiet though. for a change. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, man. So yeah, I found that really interesting. And we don't want to dive too deep into the NSAIDs. But one of the things we didn't realize is that there's, depending on what you read, there are different subcategories of NSAIDs. Aspirin is its own subcategory. They all have sort of a similar central ring structure, but their side chains are quite different. So you've got the big ones are the acetic acid, which includes Toradol and indomethacin, and then the propionic acid, which is like Motrin and naproxen. And those guys are like pretty different in their side chains. And so when we talk about NSAID allergy in the next podcast, we'll get into that a little bit more, but aspirin is its own thing. So they basically are different based on their structure. But you kind of looked, Mike, into the history of aspirin, and man, what did you find? It, it was fascinating. Right. So while the pathophysiology really, really geeks you out, I, I get into the, the history of it. And I find this really interesting. Not only is it the world's most commonly used drug, it's also maybe the oldest drug known to have been used in the past. So as far as 1534 BC, the ancient Sumerians were chewing on willow bark. Yeah. And different different people, groups from different parts of the world that even didn't contact each other, they all kind of figured this out. And it's not really well understood kind of how they did, but maybe they just were so bored or, I don't know. <laughs> chew some they, bark. They would just chew on the tree of, yeah, the bark of different trees and see what happened. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I like food, right? And so I kind of like the history of food and I also like trying different alcohols, not at work, but at home. And one of the things I cut into recently was like Amaro, like bitters cocktails, because it's not popular in the US, right? It's popular in Europe. And on a trip to Italy one time, I was trying some different ones there. And I thought, why don't we have these here? But when I was looking into it a little more, actually those Amaros, those bitters, that taste in our body is actually something we always want to spit out. And the bark of these trees is bitter. And some people hypothesize that some of the early medicine men or shamans or whatever they were back then, 
probably were using bitter things and thought this is medicine and they would use them as digestives or things like that. That is kind of probably how that came about is what, what it sounds like is that they use these bitter, bitter things like willow bark as medicines, which is interesting. Right. And it seems like it's just common to humankind to figure that out because, you know, people in South Africa, people in Europe, Native Americans, like they all have have figured out that willow bark is a pain reliever and makes you feel better. And Uh, not just willow bark. There are like plenty of different types of shrubs or hedges that contain salicylic acid or it's actually salicin, which is the active ingredient in willow bark and a few others. So so it's interesting that they tried different things. And so that's kind of where it came from first and then was developed in Germany. And that whole story in itself, how it became a drug that we use in the late 1800s from this willow bark, you know, what did you find out there, man? Well, this is also really fascinating. So Bayer was one of the first companies to intentionally try to chemically create medications. And so what they would do is take these compounds that had side effects and they'd try to kind of refine them so that they would eliminate the side effects and, and maintain the good parts of the drug. And so... With salicin, one of the things they were doing, it was really irritating the GI tract, and and it was unstable. So they were trying to find a stable form that was not irritating, and so they just kept trying to chemically mess with it. And this guy, Felix Hoffman, figured out that if you can acetylate the the compound, it becomes stable. Right. Right. And that's where acetyl salicylic acid comes from. It's the right. acetylation of it that makes it stable and also is much less irritating to the stomach. And so yeah. so he's the guy that actually discovered the drug. There's some controversy because of kind of the way that, that Bear was structured. He had a boss. His boss had a boss. There was some controversy about who actually discovered it. But he's the guy that is, I think, most often given credit for actually creating it. I know there's some, well, there's some debate about that. It depends what you read because this this Hoffman guy was a German guy and his boss Eichengrün was Jewish. And if there is a lot of literature that points towards actually Eichengrün was the guy who told him, "Hey, go do this, try this," but he lost credit for it as they went into World War One, World War Two, because this happened in like eighteen eighty, eighteen ninety. And it was interesting because they were actually isolating their salicin from a plant that actually gave aspirin basically half of its name. So it's called spirea. It's like a kind of a bush. It's called meadow sweet. And so when he when he created acetyl salicylic acid, the word aspirin is actually the acetyl, like you said, and spirea. So aspirin, that's where it came from. And so he basically synthesized that, but under the instruction of his boss is what it sounds like, but we don't really know. So there's quite some debate about it. But interesting about Bayer, they actually were creating drugs from aniline dyes. And this was kind of a one-off. They were like, let's try this plant product. And they would create later the first sulfa drug. And that was a book that you and I had both read called The Demon Under the Microscope, which is really interesting. And that was created from an aniline dye. So the first sulfa drug was kind of a reddish, reddish color. And so they were trying to create things from these dyes. And their big product was dyes. And actually their logo I looked into this a little bit. This is really interesting. It used to be like this this lion with a kind of a caduceus logo because they were really a dye company and then became a medication company later. One of their employees basically sketched out they couldn't fit that logo onto a box basically because too many words because bear is actually only one part of the entire name of bear company. So he just wrote bear and a cross on a piece of paper and was like, that kind of looks cool. And they were like, let's print that on aspirin so people don't, don't counterfeit it because it, at that time it was the... It was like these fancy cancer drugs are now, like that was the drug. So they didn't want people making fake aspirin. So the Bayer logo became famous because of aspirin itself, which is interesting. 
That is kind of fascinating. And this was their first big drug. This was their right. breakthrough drug. Interestingly, right. 10 days after they discovered this, synthesized aspirin for the first time, the same guy, Felix Hoffman, in trying to find a less addictive form of morphine, synthesized heroin for the first time. For coughs. And so they use it for coughs, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's interesting. And, and then in they pursuit of a less hard. addictive form, he found the world's other most common drug. Yeah. Yeah. To help people not be addicted to morphine, which didn't help at all. So that's right. As we found that's out. right. It was a big two weeks for that guy, though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He went from picking plants in a field and then to creating heroin. So, I mean, it's really an interesting right. thing for him. Right. Well, so, what but, I find but, most but, so uh, basically kind of ironic about the whole thing is that neither him nor Eichengrun ever made a dollar off either of those drugs. It was their boss right. who actually had discredited aspirin as a waste of time is the only one who ever made money on it. And he made a fortune. Yeah, which is I mean, that's I guess corporate medicine in the 1890s is the same as corporate medicine today. So <laughs> that's right. It's very <laughs> reassuring to me. <laughs> so <laughs> Some things never so, change. Some things never change, man. But interestingly, this drug was really used primarily for pain control. Like they didn't have any other options until nine. What was it, nineteen sixty or nineteen sixty one? When when ibuprofen was created, and like thinking about ibuprofen, when you you know you write a patient for ibuprofen, they're like ibuprofen. But in the sixties, this was the drug for pain control. That's all we had. We had opiates, ibuprofen, and aspirin, basically. And the guy who developed it at that time, they were using aspirin and gold basically like gold flakes to treat rheumatism, quote unquote. So arthritis. So like now we're giving people like meloxicam and all this other stuff. They were like, here, you need to take all these gold flakes, basically to, to essentially kill your neutrophils so that rheumatic diseases basically didn't, didn't have any sort of inflammatory property. But you can imagine heavy metal toxicity, aspirin toxicity, they would give you high dose aspirin and all these heavy metals. So you can imagine the toxicity when Motrin came out, it was sort of a wonder drug. But aspirin then later sort of developed into this role as an antiplatelet agent in the late 60s, especially as the knowledge about acute coronary syndrome sort of developed over time when we started using acute coronary syndrome. And at first, we recently were discussing this. I just gave a talk on acute coronary syndrome. And the first time any kind of lytic was ever used was in the late 70s in Russia, actually. And before that, they would like give you aspirin and let you lay in bed for 30 days and say, well, if you make it out of this, you'll be all right. So so that was all we had at that time. So we've come a long way in less than 100 years. And aspirin has been a major player in that situation. And now here we come back to what started this all thing. What you were looking into was basically why did they stop recommending that aspirin be used for primary prevention? Or is that really the truth? That's kind of what was popularized in the, in the news media. And even in some of the scientific literature that like the glossy journals that you get in the mail, you know, no more aspirin for primary prevention, but it seems like that might not be right. a thing, right? Well, and we joke all the time about how you could tell when somebody trained based on kind of the drugs they give or, yeah, or those yeah. kinds of things. And so for me, I'm old enough that, you know, when I first heard, like, we're not using aspirin for primary cardiovascular disease prevention. I'm like, well, who made that up? Like, this is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, you're still using gold. <laughs> this is man. a terrible idea. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm old enough that that's not far, not far from the truth. So, <laughs> so I, I find it interesting to look into it. It, it helps because things change so fast and it's, it's right. easy when you're going through training, people tell you that. And it, until you experience that, when you're like, wait, something that I kind of cut my teeth on now as like it was solid gold back then and now it's just it's yeah, been it was God's drug man 
Yeah, it's God's drug. Yeah, it kind of changes your perspective on, yeah. on some of that stuff. That's right. Well, it makes you look so, into it. So it's interesting to look at. Yeah, it makes you look into it. And, and it helps keep you fresh. It's, it's the importance of staying current. Right. Um, and, and a big reason why you and I are doing this. Exactly. So, so what did you find, uh, man, when you looked into the reviews and stuff? What did they really say and why did they take it away? Or did they take it away? What, what did we find? Yeah, so basically, as common as aspirin is, I think a lot of us, and even patients, they just think of it as kind of a harmless drug. And a if vitamin. you really look into this, that's right. Like like anything else, if it's natural, it's got to be good for you, right? Yeah, so exactly. They can't possibly have any side effects. But if you really dig into the the side effects of this, it, it is a kind of a dirty drug. It causes a lot of bleeding, and and some of that bleeding can be significant. And so, one of the studies that that kind of was on the forefront of this change looked at kind of a longitudinal study of patients. And their number needed to treat to prevent one non-fatal MI was was in the hundreds. Well, yeah. 130 yeah. was the number. Yeah. But their number needed to harm was like pretty low. It was like, like 75. To, to have one GI bleed, basically. And that was over a 10-year period, though, right? Right. And so, obviously, the numbers are really big. But if that's your number needed to treat, number needed to harm, that's pretty disparate. And, and so, it really kind of caused a, a reevaluation of, is this really what we need to be doing? Just given this stuff out like candy? And the answer right. is no, you shouldn't. It, now, it does help in secondary prevention and in patients that have really high risk that are under a certain age. Once you hit a certain age. Right. You say secondary prevention. We should clarify that. Primary prevention is saying, okay, you are 50 years old and we want to prevent you from having a heart attack or stroke. Secondary prevention is you have what we think is probably ACS or you have chest pain we or EMS gave you an aspirin to prevent you from having worsening coronary artery thrombosis or you had stroke-like symptoms. We're giving you an aspirin. That's secondary prevention. And that is a completely different story from primary prevention, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because once you have coronary cardiovascular disease, then then it kind of changes the game. And it changes yeah, that dynamic of number you know, need to treat, it, number need to harm. Right. Because we were basically what had happened was a lot of primary care doctors were giving people aspirin once they hit the age of, say, 50 because of the old guidelines basically said, oh, between the ages of 50 and 70, aspirin is indicated for primary prevention of stroke. But what they changed now is they changed the age range. And if you look at the USPTF guidelines as well, they say that aspirin is really don't use it if you're less than 40 or over 70. But in patients between that basically 40 and 59 age range, if your 10-year coronary artery disease risk, it, or we can call it cardiovascular slash stroke risk, is greater than 10% based on your risk factors, then you the risks of bleeding are outweighed by the risks of not using aspirin, right? Right. And I found it interesting because it's a little bit counterintuitive to me. You'd think the older you get, the higher risk, right? For every disease, we right. talk about, well, the extremes of age. But this is one where the older you get, actually, it, the benefit decreases because your yeah, risk of bleeding that, gets higher as you get older. Right. And that was really from this seminal trial in JAMA, which showed that patients between 40 and 59 had the highest benefit from aspirin with the lowest amount of adverse events. And as you get older, like you said, you just tend to have more and more bleeding events. And actually, when they looked at like these meta-analyses of all this data, they found that aspirin prevented non-fatal MI and non-fatal stroke. So what we define as MI might be a little elevation in troponin or a TIA, but it could be life-changing, right? But it didn't have a mortality benefit. So I think what they're trying to do is capture the time period that you are a functional sort of contributing human when a stroke or a heart attack may cause you to not be that way. And then as you get older, the risk of bleeding increases pretty dramatically as you get older. And so I think that's what they were trying to eliminate was that risk. Is that right? Right. And we've all seen the 
octogenarian that the that's having a STEMI that doesn't go to the cath lab, right? Because right. exactly they already can't move any extremities and the risk just of the cath is, is greater than the benefit. And so the data gets skewed when you start As you entering into that population. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we had discussed earlier was that you found a paper that showed that the risk of GI bleeding or major GI bleeding was almost 60% with aspirin for all comers for a hundred thousand patient study, that st- study that we talked about and that the odds ratio for intracranial hemorrhage, symptomatic or non-symptomatic fatal intracranial cranial hemorrhage was almost one and a half times higher if you use aspirin. And that does increase with age just like anything else, right? And so that's why they took this off the table. However, for primary prevention that we don't do it, except if you have risk factors, your risk factors are greater than 10% and you fall between that 40 and 59 age range. But for secondary prevention, we still recommend it actually. And interestingly enough, we had another question that we actually just were discussing earlier today when you have a patient who's on a DOAC, and we have so many patients on DOACs or what we used to call NOACs, now they're not new anymore, but they come in with chest pain or they come in with stroke. Do we give that person aspirin? What do we do? Because we're talking about all this bleeding risk. Should we, should we not give them aspirin? Right. And I think just to quickly summarize, I think the, the bottom line is that aspirin is not a benign drug. And so I think we need to treat right. it maybe a little more carefully than, than a lot of us have historically just as a harmless thing. And so, especially in someone who's on other anticoagulants, you really want to be careful with the willy-nilly. We've we've all had the patient who, well, I can't take that aspirin. I'm here with chest pain, but I'm on Coumadin. So my doctor told me never to take an aspirin. And then you have that conversation. And what we found out was actually, I think, very interesting. You looked at some 2020 recommendations that basically say, the American College of Cardiology ones that we looked at, right? Right, right. So they're really smart people. They basically <laughs> suggest that either you use the lowest possible dose of aspirin, like a baby aspirin, in someone who's already on a DOAC, or Plavix actually looks like it's a little better than aspirin in that situation. Yeah, as far as coronary artery complication prevention and a lower risk of bleeding acutely. However, aspirin, when compared to Plavix, seems to have a higher rate of GI bleeding. Is that correct? That's also what we found. Right. There's a little more side effects and, and not any additional benefit. Yeah. And also the other thing is too, and I think this is sort of, you can extrapolate from this paper and others that we read was the use of Plavix in what, who you think have patients who have ACS, those patients for stenting are going to get on, on Plavix anyway. And one of the things that they said was not to use triple therapy, meaning DOAX, aspirin plus Plavix, but in some patients that are super high risk, you may have to, but we don't really have to deal with that. It seems like if you give an 81 of aspirin for a person on a DOAC, or if you give a patient Plavix on a DOAC, you're, you're absolutely fine. And it does decrease their risk of worsening disease, right? Right. And longevity of therapy matters. So that single yeah. dose probably doesn't make a big difference. It may provide some benefit, probably not going to be harmful. But if you put them on them for 30 days, then that's where you got to be careful. Right. So I in, think in, in, the, in the emergency department setting, if you're worried about ACS and somebody's got AFib and they're on a DOAC, I think you're fine to give the aspirin still. Right. I, I might think about giving 81 instead of the full 325. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was looking at some other. Exactly. And I was looking at some other studies that said that 325 is just as good as 160 of aspirin. And there are some other studies that say that 160 is just as good as 81. So I think you can extrapolate that any aspirin is good aspirin. We just want to minimize those side effects from what we're seeing. In the same vein, we talked a little bit about stroke prevention. What about aspirin for primary prevention of stroke? What did you find there? 
Well, basically the same thing that it's yeah. not the best. It, Unless you have stroke risk no, factors, it seems. Right. Right. Unless you're very high risk primary prevention, it's just not very good. I, I found a more interesting question and maybe this is a settled thing for everybody else, but every time I push thrombolytics in stroke, I think, uh, what about aspirin? Maybe I should give that. Well, uh, and sometimes they get aspirin in EMS, right? And then we're like, oh man, like what do, what do we do now? Right. Like, right. what do I do? It, what does that mean? Makes me worried. Yeah. So what did you find about yeah. that? Well, there are a couple of papers and, and this pretty well is a settled thing. I just hadn't looked at it before that carefully. Aspirin has worse outcomes across the board, increased mortality, no additional benefit and increased bleeding risk. So when the two together are, are not good when given in combination. Right. Yeah. So that's why, you know, the protocols usually define don't give aspirin for 24 hours after you've given lytics. If you have the alternative, exactly. don't give them before either. Right. Exactly. And then it's sort of on the same stroke page, aspirin and AFib. Remember this? Like when we used to be like medical students, residents, and you would have like an old school doc be like, well, let's just give them aspirin because Coumadin was such a pain in the butt. So they put these people on aspirin. But it seems to me that from what we looked at, aspirin doesn't really do anything in AFib. So we really shouldn't even entertain that. Even maybe it makes us feel better about our low like Chad's Vask patients, but I don't think it really even does anything. Did you find anything different? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I, I think at best it showed a trend toward toward improvement, but but nothing yeah. statistically significant. Now, the only place, the only exception really to that is the patient that's at very high risk. You know, the the old grandma that falls down all the time. That yeah, the risk of being on a on a stronger DOAC or something is right. You don't really have a choice, but it's but it's not nothing. Yeah, and even in that ACC guideline, they said if you have primary cardiovascular disease and you're on an aspirin and they, somebody puts you on a DOAC, that it's probably okay to take away that aspirin and just keep that person on a DOAC. However, since the risk of them having a rethrombosis on a blood thinner is pretty low, but if they are having one, adding aspirin in the acute phase is appropriate, right? Right. Cool, cool, cool. And I think that's kind of like, I mean, we kind of like beat that to death so we can bring it back around and sort of summarize. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out at you and ask you a few things and we'll just summarize it. So is that a thing? So aspirin, fascinating drug. We can agree that aspirin is a fascinating drug and a really interesting drug historically and sort of encapsulates the entire history of medicine into one little stamp pill, which is kind of neat, but aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Is that a thing? Not a thing. Unless Not you're thing. super Unless you high respecters. risk and the right age. And the right age. Aspirin for primary prevention of stroke? Not a thing. What about colorectal cancer? Super we haven't really talked risk. about it, but I... Super high risk. But it does... And you have to take it for like 20 years, actually, which was fascinating. So you have to take right. it for 20 years, every single day for 20 years. You know, I'd rather have a GI bleed than rectal cancer, but that's besides the point. So maybe these people are getting colonoscopies because they have GI bleeds and someone's like, you have colorectal cancer. Oh, so aspirin for primary prevention of that doesn't work. Yep. And and you said stroke, not a thing. What about giving aspirin when someone's on an, a DOAC and you think they have ACS? Again, it depends on your risk. If they think they're super high risk, if a one-time dose is a thing, if you're going to be longer than that, be careful, probably minimize the dose or look at Plavix instead. Plavix is probably better. Right. But for secondary pre prevention of ACS, patient presents with chest pain. They're not on a DOAC. They've got chest pain. We still give them aspirin, right? That's still going to be a thing. It's probably not going to go away. Right. 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 Awesome. 
Cool, man. Well, awesome, dude. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and, thanks uh, for having me.